Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of Shared Pages. I am Ronnie. And I'm Ian. And we're here with you lovely readers to discuss another book, our January book, which was The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. Uh, It was my pick uh, this month, and I wanted something that was like a fantasy slash romance. I wanted a little more towards the romance side, so that's what led me to the Night Circus, because it seemed like a lot of people really like it. Seems like it had romance in it, and it was fantasy, and uh, I figured, why not? Give it a try. Um, so yeah, that that um, is the gist of the book. So, just as a heads up, we're going to try something a little different. I know usually with our podcast episodes, we tend to go through the entire plot of the book, and then kind of pick up points of interest to discuss along the way as we're talking about it. But this time I tried to do a shorter summarization for us to start with, and then we'll go through and do more um, literature-type discussions about the the rest of it from there. Yeah. So, um, just as a heads up, too, this summarization is going to not include a lot of characters, because there's a lot lot of characters. characters, Like, tertiary. Like, this is a very, very bare-bones description of the book, which, hey, you know what? If you are listening to this and you have read the book, it's good, because there will be maybe less spoilers, although we'll probably talk about them later, I don't know. But, at least in the general summary part, you know. Alright, so, um, any, any, any starting comments from you, Ian? No, not really. I mean, like, it's a interesting book. It's very, like you said, character dense. Yes. And, um, like it's in. What I will say is, like, I think people look at this book and think it's like a a r- fiction leaning towards romance, and mm-hmm. it's actually I think it's almost more of a literary fiction than what people expect it to be. Mm, okay. Yeah. So we'll discuss that then later as we get into it. So, all right. So this book, The Night Circus, by Aaron Morgenstern. It follows a magical wandering circus, which you could probably guess from the name, and it is only open from sundown to sunrise. The circus is called Le Cirque de Rêves. Did I say that right? Le Cirque de Rêves, yeah. Le Cirque de Rêves, or the Circus of Dreams. Um, and within our tents that defy all imagination, there is a garden made of ice that is filled with like blooming flowers, somehow made completely out of ice and then there is a cloud maze where if you fall you float gently between clouds to land on the floor there's a fortune teller who gives eerily accurate readings and so many more tents so many more they describe a lot of them um and they all sound very fantastical like i would love to go there the circus appears without warning and travels mysteriously All are amazed by the circus, and it's no wonder, since the circus is run with real magic. But there is another purpose to the circus beyond just entertaining the masses. It serves as a battleground for two powerful magicians. Uh, These magicians are Celia Bowen and Marco Alistair, the arguably two main characters of the book. I I think think Alistair (laughs) means defender. Okay. Um... I just thought of that while we were doing that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. I wonder if Celia's name has meaning, too. Um, but Celia and Marco were trained by two magician- magicians who had previously 
They had many competitions with each other for many, many years. Celia was trained by her father, Hector Bowen, more famously known as Prospero the Enchanter. And Marco was trained by a mysterious man in gray who adopted him for the sole purpose of taking part in this competition. He is known only as Mr. A.H. or Alexander. Sounds like a Resident Evil character. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. <laughs> Celia suffers years of abuse under the guise of training from her father, who is only obsessed with winning the next competition. And Marco spends most of his life locked away in solitude, studying magic in books given to him by Alexander. Celia becomes the illusionist of the circus, dazzling with transformations in her performances and making tents with wondrous aspects inside. And Marco becomes an assistant producer to the circus and creates a link to the circus for himself through the bonfire, adding his own illusory tents when he is able. Together, they work on maintaining the circus and adding to it for many years, both of them aware of the competition they are part of, but not really understanding all that it entails. As the years pass, Marco and Celia continue to maintain the circus and add to it, both becoming strained at the cost of doing so, especially Celia, who has bound herself entirely to the circus by the way that her magic works. And during this time, Marco and Celia find themselves drawn to each other even more than they thought possible after they were already magically bound to each other in this competition by their masters each giving them a ring that burned a ring mark onto their finger permanently that they are unable to get rid of, which draws them together. Um, they fall deeply in love with each other during this time. And additionally, characters who have found themselves unknowingly bound to the circus begin to suffer from being bound to it. They seemingly do not age, and their minds struggle to comprehend what's really happening around them. So stuff starts to go downhill. And eventually, Celia learns from Prospero, her father, that the only way for the competition to end is when one of the contestants is no longer able to go on, which usually means death. And obviously, neither Celia or Marco want this uh, to happen, because they love each other uh, very much at this point. And they begin to attempt to find ways to avoid the fate. And in the final climactic moment of the book, this is the best way I can describe it, Celia makes herself and Marco incorporeal spirits that are attached to the circus. Like, almost like the patron saints. Almost. And the circus is rebound to a boy named Bailey, who has a deep love for the circus and its magic, who we will talk about Bailey, obviously, as we dive yeah. into the book. Um, and Marco and Celia uh, live as ghosts forever together in the circus. Yeah, like, they're, like, in the circus, and people are, like, it seems like people are aware they're there, and they're just kind of like, oh, that's just a good nature. Like, if, if they want to be seen, they can be, like, seen by other people, but most of the time they're, like, see-through. I guess, but that's, and they can still kind of influence things from the world, but they're not really bound to it anymore, which is, like, this whole thing. Anyway, that's the general summary of Yeah, the yeah. I think that's a pretty good base summary. Yeah, that's like, you know, if you took the, the, the <laughs> book is 512 pages long. It's a long, long book. That's like if you only took Marco, and Celia, Celia story. and one point of Bailey, but yeah. you would get, like, A to Z. Yeah, no, it, the book was much longer than I originally anticipated, if I'm being honest, because I think I looked it up, and it was, like, 
anyway, it was like 300 something pages, but that was a hardcover. But the, the, the one that we got was like 512 or something. And it's very like dense too. Like it's a, it's not like big print is what I'm saying. It's a lot of exposition. But it was, it, it's, it is a good book. So, um, all right. Now that we've done that lengthy uh, summarization, there is just one thing I want to touch on before we really start diving into the characters. And I just want to mention really quick the cover of the book. Um, and I mean the hand holding the circus part. Yeah. It was made by a woman named Helen Musselwhite. And she works with hand cut paper as like her medium for art. And that is the style that the cover is done in. Mm -hmm. And I I really like it. I really think it works for the theme of the circus, especially because I think there actually is a tent in the circus made of, like, paper animals and paper things yeah, that, yeah. like, like come to life. And it's one of Marco's tents um, that he made. So I really like the, the paper art. I like the design of it. I don't think the cover suits the style of the story. Interesting. Okay. I think the story is much more of a romance than the cover leads people to believe. Well, the alternated cover, which we do have, does have the shadows of Marco and Celia, like, looking at each other across the circus yeah. on it. So, um, but yeah, I guess you could argue that you could have them in an embrace, I, I guess. I expected the... before reading the book for it to be not like something wicked this way comes circus dark, but somewhere between romance in there. Mm -hmm. And instead, like, not only is it like a romantic story as in like like uh eros romance mm -hmm. but it's like a romantic story in the style of like how the romantic poets would have written about the circus where like they like everything is a symbol bigger than what it actually is which i think that is a a good jumping off point for me to hijack the conversation and talk about uh one of my favorite characters of the book which was hair 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 Thiessen? Thiessen. I think that's how you say Herr it. Herr Frederick Thiessen? I think, it, I think it's pronounced Thiessen. Honestly, he might have he been my favorite character in the book. Like, period. Um, and the reason I say that what you said is a good jumping off point about how the circus is more than what it is, is because his character essentially views the circus as that. Yeah, yeah. And um, he was the maker of the Monstrum clock, or the Dream clock. Yeah, which is like a central piece of the... It's a central piece of the circus. The description of it is so beautiful. Like, when I read the description of this clock in the book with, like, all the different elements of it, and the juggler, like, the amount of balls changing per hour that he juggles as it goes on, like, it... I had to look up to see if there was art of this right away, and there was, and it was really cool. So, um, but this, uh, Herr Thiessen makes the clock for the circus, and he doesn't know what he's making it for. And he makes it, and then they take it to the circus, and he gets invited one point when the circus is in town, and he goes to it, and he's like, yo, this shit is amazing. <laughs> like, like, he's like, this shit is bananas, like that Gwen Stefani song about the, the circus, and he's like, this is great. Um, and he, he starts writing about his experience with the circus, and he ends up inadvertently creating a group, a fan club called the Revers. Yeah, 
Yeah, Rivars. See, I don't know French pronunciation. Well, like, because so. it's not spelled like Arrivars. Uh, uh, I think it's more like Revoir. Revoir? Yeah. yeah, he, the Revors or the Dreamers, as they call themselves. And they're just people that are not a part of the circus, but follow the circus. And they all share these, like, deep personal moments, which these are all described in the book, too, that these people share in, in the circus itself. And they start to a big part of the circus is that it's monochromatic is that the right word it's all black and white yeah yeah and the way that they distinguish themselves is they would wear all black or all white but they'd have a a splash of red so they'd wear a red scarf or have like a red rose tucked in their um suit jacket or something like that and um what i wanted to say about this is i feel like to what you were saying is that like what role do we feel like the rivers play in keeping the spirit of the circus alive outside of the just the circus tents being a thing right yeah like they they see i have to compare every circus or carnival story to something wicked because that's like my uh uh sacred cow Mm -hmm. of circus writing okay (laughs) um and like I think like in something wicked, this this horrifying carnival shows up out of nowhere unexpectedly all the time and then like, you know, causes havoc in the city. Mm-hmm. And people it takes so long to show up again that people have forgotten about it, which is kinda of what they want. But this it's more of a like the word of mouth is keeping the show alive. Like uh, you know, there's not it's Victorian. Mm-hmm. So like there's like not much else to do. Except go to the circus when he shows up. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm like I'm sure there was other stuff to do. <laughs> right. But, I but can't that think was of something like, off the top of my head. That right was now. like you know like ooh the circus is in town let's go, go to do cafe. that. We don't get to do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. So like if you have a word of, like they say like you need thirty people that are really into a thing to spread it with word of mouth or to move out of its like original location to be a bigger phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know these people are like you know. Just slightly more in the loop than Joe on the street, and they're like, "Oh, I hear the magical circus is coming again." And then he tells someone, and you know, it keeps like the common people who are not engaged in the game, but outside of the like, just want to go to the circus, engaged in this traveling phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think like there is like a that. I feel like I was reading it, and I was like, I feel like I'd be a river. Like I feel like I would be like. Yeah, the circus we heard it's in New York and we gotta like go, you know, like I feel like I would I would love that. It the one so thing cool. I will say about them is all of them just seem to be rich people who are like, <laughs> I'm kinda bored and there's this weird circus. Let's go that follow is that true. thing they, around. They do seem like all the revers tend to be they tend to all be rich people, but the thing is is like they're they're not necessarily they make a point of saying like not all of them are well off, but if you showed up and you were like, man, I really want to go to the circus, but, like, I, I can't financially make it, they'd be like, we're paying for you. Yeah. And they would just, like, take you yeah. to to experience it as well. That's, like, kind of how I got the whales. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, And there there's a quote that Frederick Thiessen says, where he says, I prefer to remain unenlightened to better appreciate the dark. When he's asked if... When he's asked if he's ever tried to figure out how the circus does what it does he is like no yeah. i prefer to enjoy the mystery 
rather than trying to yeah and i mean like it's like you know i did i did a decade like and or more theater all the time for for a while and you like i can't go to a show and be like wowed by this show because i've always like look at that cool set design i see that guy in the wings and i shouldn't be able to see him and that's like what he's trying to avoid yeah yeah definitely and like hair Thiessen, he ends up becoming, like, a staple part of the circus, too. Like, people recognize him, and they know him, and they know he is kind of, like, the jumping-off point to let all the other revers know when the circus is coming. He, like, gets the heads up, and then he, like, lets them all know. Mm -hmm. And so he... I just I just loved his story so much. He seemed like such a, like, a kind man, too, and, like, all he wanted to do was make his little clocks, and his clocks were, like, ingenious. They were, like, beautiful, and then he found the circus, and he's, like, the circus is almost like doing what well, I'm trying to do with my clocks, but on like a larger way. I, I think scale. it's like a symptom of talented artists, like a, an author, not an author, an author, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who is so involved in their craft that their hands are in every single part, like, you know, gears, like woodworking, like every single part. And then him seeing something of like an artistry on like the level he respects. So then he's like, I'm going to follow this piece of art around because it, like, inspires me. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so we talked a little bit about my favorite character. Um, Did you have a favorite character? I mean... I think it was Bailey, but I also like Lefebvre. Well, Uh, perfect. I did did want to talk about Bailey next, so... Um, but my... Because it's, it's... Widgets, the male twin. Mm-hmm. Like my, I he, I think they're interesting characters, and we'll get to them. They're kind of tertiary characters until the very end. It's these two twins. Yeah, Widget it's and so Poppet. weird. They are tertiary characters, but then at the end, they're like actually they're like the key to everything, yeah. and you're like, what? <laughs> um, but like, there's a scene where he is talking to Mr. Oh. Anderson. Oh. Uh huh. Um, which is Matrix. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and that's my favorite scene in the book, which is weird because neither of them are my favorite characters. Interesting. Okay. But yeah, yeah I'm so, interested in Bailey. So let's let's talk about Bailey a little bit then, and kind of going from Hare Thiessen that was like kind of like the hype man, if you will, but very subtly of the circus. And then Bailey, I don't think Bailey had read any of Hare Thiessen's things, but he just found the circus when it stopped near his hometown one day. And he kind of, it's like kind of that thing where like, when you experience something at a young age, and then you just imprint on it, and you're like, I'm gonna make my whole personality yeah, about yep. this. <laughs> like, you're just like, that's kind of how Bailey was well, in the circus, almost. And like, I think there's two things, because there's these interspersed chapters in the book, and I, it's really interesting because I don't know if it's a misprint or if the, they actually meant to typeset it more narrow so it looks like a newspaper article a little bit. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're, like, you're in the book. Mm-hmm. And they're, you're, like, in the circus and there's just, like, moments of you walking around looking at all the wonder stuff. Uh, so that's, like, one way you are brought into the book. And I think Bailey is also, like, the common person mm-hmm. who, like, you could see yourself in because you're, like, not the contortionist, you know? Yeah. Or, like, anyone else. So just looking at the circus through Bailey's eyes gives someone who's just, like, a normal, like, business person or accountant or something a character to latch onto. Yeah. Other than, like, 
Because some people don't like to read fantastical things because they don't feel like they have anything in common with them. But if you look at it through Bailey's eyes, then you have, like, a an anchor. Yeah, so, like, Bailey was the son of a farmer, basically. And I think he was probably, like, somewhere between 12 and 15. I don't remember exactly when he first encountered the circus. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of just, like, you know, he remembers the smell, and he remembers the first time he, like, went to the acrobat's tent, and he remembers all these things about it, and he... The circus is really kind of the only thing that has moved him in his life, and his his parents are like, you have to take over the farm, and his grandma's like, no, you have to go to college, and Bailey's like, I don't really want to do any of those things. All I really care about is, like, the only time I feel happy, basically, is when the circus is in town, and I can go and spend, like, my nights there. Yeah. Um. So the the book does shift... Um in a non-linear sequence quite frequently it actually jumps between um Celia and Marco's time of like the circus being created everything and it jumps like forward so that you sit see Bailey interacting with the circus after it's already been created yeah yeah and at first you're just kind of like confused cuz you're like who is this this kid I don't understand. He just is, like, some farmer's kid that makes friends with Poppet and Widget, the two twins that you mentioned earlier that are important to the plot. And it just seems to be, like, having a fun time with them at the circus. It doesn't seem to be super vital. But Poppet and Widget. They're, like, they were born. They were born the day the circus opened. Like, on the hour. I think, because they're, like, very kind children. But I also also think of them as, like, the kind of kids in horror movies who stare at you a little too long and forget to blink. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they are kind of, they, they, they have special abilities. And it's suggested that it may be because of the circumstances of their birth that they have these abilities, which seems highly likely to yeah. me. Um, but Widget, his power is that he can read people, as he says. He can read people and he can tell stories. That's his... his power. Poppet is more, like, she kind of sees visions of the future, maybe, but it's kind of like every vision could be a possible future. It's not necessarily true, and and she has to kind of learn how to discern it. And she doesn't know how far in the future it is, so she it could be like, around this corner is a serial killer, or around this corner 30 years from now. Right, (laughs) she has no way to judge like when it is um and you don't really learn how crucial their specialties are to the ongoing success of the circus until way late like really at the final moments of the book and really what is important about these characters is that poppet learns that bailey is somehow crucial to the circus being able to go on after Marco and Celia have finished whatever competition they're being forced to compete in. Um, so, I don't, I'm trying to, trying to think if there's anything else important about Bailey, because I don't want to miss anything. Well, I think that's, like, the point about Bailey, is there mm-hmm. is nothing important about him, except that he's in the right place at the right time, and he has the, like, desire to do a job that not everyone would want to do for whatever reason. So that brings me to I did I did save a quote here. So there's a point it's like the very end of the book where Celia and Marco are already ghosts. She's ghostified them. 
and they're like, the circus is like collapsing essentially because Marco and Celia aren't there in their corporeal forms anymore to keep it running. And they essentially have to like pass their power on to somebody else who's willing to take on the burden of the circus if it is going to stay alive, basically. And Bailey like comes up to them and Celia's like, I'm going to offer to pass it to you. Like, you can say yes or no. And she says, this is the quote she says to him. She says, you're not destined or chosen. I wish I could tell you that you were if it would make that, if that would make it easier. But it's not true. You're in the right place at the right time. You care enough to do what needs to be done. Sometimes that's enough. Um, so that's the, that's the exact quote of that moment. So, like, what you were saying. And I kind of, I actually really liked that moment. Yeah, yeah. I liked when she said that to him. And I actually looked it up, um, Erin Morgenstern, the author herself, actually commented on it, and she said, It was important to me to have Bailey not be the chosen one, or fated, or destined, or anything that might imply that his own choices or agency belong to anything other than himself. He's a boy who cares. He could have been anyone. Someone else could have been standing where he is, but they're not. And he is, and that's as simple and as complicated as it is. Yeah. Sure, maybe there's a hint of fate or destiny swirling around the edges of Poppet's visions and all, but fate only gives you opportunities. You have to choose to take them. Yeah, and I could I could go off on like completely other characters from different books that are like Bailey. I'm not going to. Okay, go on. But, like, no. you know, like, it's a big criticism of some authors who put characters like Bailey in, and they're, like, a normal person in whatever magical circumstances for however long, and then they become a magical being because their friends are magical beings, and it feels right. But you're taking away, like, the the average person can be effective in any circumstance as long as they are willing to do the work to be a part of the world. Right, yeah, like, I, I really like that idea because I think there are so many stories where it's like, she was just an average girl, and then it's like, just kidding, actually she's a special because she's chosen, you know, and it's like, well, but like, I kind of like this better, where it's like, he he wasn't special, he just really loves the circus, like, that is that is essentially the central power of Bailey. He just loves the circus and he wants to save it. And he is given the opportunity to do so here. And I, I, I really liked that ending for him. I was really happy with Bailey's ending. Let's say that. Yeah. Um, and something interesting about the ending is that it implies the circus is still running right now. Yeah. And I wish... I knew if I, I I have to assume she's read something wicked this way comes. I mean, you'd assume so. I imagine any author probably has read because that. <laughs> well, that's like a it's like a thing in pop literature is like the thief lord, the car, the carousel from something wicked is in that, mm. and then like Doctor Sleep is like the the next iteration of this magical carnival. And it seems like she took Bradbury's carnival and made it more of, like, a a, a place you would want to be in, you know? Right. And I just wonder if, like, that was an actual influence or if she just was like, eh, the carnivals are kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, carnivals are kind of cool. Maybe I'll write a book about it. <laughs> that she did. Yeah, and it was it worked out pretty well. Um, So, a little bit, uh, I just, okay, I'm trying to think of how to bet. Like, again, like, this is a very character-dense book, so let's see. So I did want to talk a little bit, too, about the 
It's been discussed in this book about the morality of Celia and Marco because they're pulling those other characters. Uh, there's some that we haven't really talked about. Chandrish Le... How do you say it? I, I say Lefebvre. Le who is essentially the owner hmm. for all intents and purposes because he's like, he's the bank. He's bankrolling it, essentially. He's the one that originally draws up the blueprints for the circus and everything. Um... But, like, Chandrish, there's this man named Ethan Barris, who is kind of like the, um, not the idea guy, the opposite of that. He's, like, the rational guy that's like, how are we going to actually make this work? And then there's, like, Tara and Lainey Burgess, and there's, um, there, there's, like, all these other characters that are not in the circus, but are part of it by running it. Mm-hmm. And... Like they, they don't know what they're getting involved they've with. They've been forced to become, like, undying beings in an yeah. ongoing circus. They, they basically, they are not, they're kind of tricked by um, Marco's teacher, yeah, Anderson, because Anderson, he's the one that sets up the competition to be in this circus. And, like, Marco and Celia know they're in this competition, and they know that they're using real magic, and... Marco knows he's, like, extending these people's lives, and it drives one of the sisters, uh, Tara Burgess. Like, she is, like, trying so hard to understand what's happening because she cannot comprehend that it's real magic that she ends up committing suicide. I don't think she did. It's really weird because she's, like, trying to question Anderson, the man in gray, Marco's teacher. Because... The text And he, like, messes with her mind. It specifically says, like, she sees... Like, she asks him what's going on. And he mm-hmm. says, like, he, like, does magic, so she doesn't want to ask him anymore. He's like, nothing to see. But then she, like, in her mind, she still knows she's trying to do something. So when she notices him again, she tries to walk across the train tracks to talk to him. Yes. And it specifically says, she sees them, she didn't see, see the, train. the train. So yeah. I don't think it's suicide. But that is what everybody says about her. Is that she committed suicide. Mm. But that I don't... I agree with you. I don't think it was suicide. I think she was just, like, so driven to try and figure out what was really going on that yeah. she ended up dying. And my favorite character here, Tyson, he ends up dying as well. Because Chandrish, who is also trying to figure out and understand what's going on, but Marco's messing with his mind, making him forget. He, like, stalks the Anderson through the circus one day and ends up throwing a knife at him, but it misses, obviously, because Anderson's, like, a super powerful magician. He's like a quasi-demigod. Yeah, and it ends up hitting Herr Thiessen, uh, Thiessen, and he dies. Yeah. So there's these people that are involved in it, but Marco and Celia never tell those people. Like, mm-hmm. they never tell anybody. Like, they, they, they could. They care about these people, supposedly. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. I saw a lot of people discussing, like, should they... Could should they have told at least the people that were involved in it like that what was going on so I, that they would know? I think it's like a logical step because Prospero and Anderson are like unfathomably old. Not like they're not like you know from the classical period, mm-hmm. but they're so old that they're they've... Pr- they're at least like I would say at least like. 400 years yeah. old like maybe around there i don't know like, like they're they're old to the point where like you know emotions normal human emotions have become like dull boring to, to them, them or something yeah so like they're like you know dead on the inside 
And then you've got uh, Susiko. Sukiko. Sukiko. Yeah. Who is one of Anderson's other students and what the the winner of the game prior to the one we're currently in like reading about. And she also seems emotionally kind of dead. And also just kind of like an asshole. And Sukiko to me was one of the most interesting characters because like she was a previous competitor. You find out she was in love with the other woman she was in competition with, and then they learned essentially what Marco and Celia learned that one of them has to die mm-hmm. to let the other go on. And the other person she was in competition with killed themselves so that Tsukiko could live. Yeah. And continue. And so like Tsukiko is I mean, yeah, she's pro- she's a bitch, but she <laughs> Um But she she's Younger than Anderson, older than Marco and Celia. Celia, yeah. And she seems more numb to the world than they are, but not completely turned off from it yet, mm-hmm. in the way Anderson is. And then you've got Marco and Celia, who are much younger, but also unaging and older than everyone else around them. And as we discussed in their backstories, both dealing with their own trauma yeah. and baggage so, from their lives. So. Like, I think they are still connected to the people around them, but uh, have, like, a view of the world as different, where to them, like, their morals exist on a different level because they're playing this, like, grand game of time versus, like, a person who has, like, 60 years of life. They have, like, an infinite amount. Yeah. And also, I wondered if Anderson and Prospero have been, like, in the game themselves forever that neither of them have lost. Hmm. That's an interesting... Like, they're, you're in, like, a, um... Or, uh, Penrose stairs of games. Like, their game... Is has to have other, other people, people play have the games. Game. And they can't end until they have, like, a very clear winner on either side or yeah. something like that. I don't know. Yeah, that is interesting. It also explain why Celia's father. Well, I mean, he is just an asshole and very <laughs> he's like, himself. like Anderson. He's just absolutely crazy. I Prospero <laughs> like fucks off and becomes a ghost. Prospero, and then he's a ghost, but then he still makes time to come back to see Celia and be like, "You're a disappointment to me." Yeah. <laughs> and she's just like, "Can you just like leave? Like, why are you here still?" Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's a very interesting theory. I like the idea that they are still in the game and maybe they are also trapped in a way, um, with themselves. Um, I did want to, I did, I, you were talking about this, how this is your favorite part. So let's circle back to it, the end where Widget is talking to Anderson, the man in the gray suit, Marco's teacher. Um, and I like this, this quote. I think this is a quote that he says to Widget when they're talking. He says, You may tell a tale that takes up residence in someone's soul, becomes their blood and self-purpose. The tale will move them and drive them, and who knows what they might do because of it, because of your words. That is your role, your gift. And I I just, I really liked that sentiment. I figured you as a writer maybe might have uh, thoughts on it as well, because to me that seems like something that's like, Hey, to like authors, like you know, you don't yeah. know what you might inspire in people. Yeah, kind of thing. well, and I mean, like, <laughs> I was like, am I gonna call J.K. Rowling? I'm gonna call J.K. <laughs> oh, Rowling. No. Oh, okay, <laughs> is like when you write yeah. something and you've published it, 
And unless someone is co-opting it for some insidious purpose, like you've written a children's story, and they're like, look at this pro-fascism story, you know? Mm -hmm. Then you have a reason to be like, no. But once you set something into the world, um, it's no longer yours. It's like whoever's reading it. And like, I have a view of translation as not only language, but like when you write a story down, you're translating your thoughts into words, like, and you can only do that in your vocabulary. And then someone else has to read those words and translate it into their worldview. So, like, something has been translated two or three times before someone else has even read it. Mm -hmm. And then um, they have to decide how that interacts with the way they see the world. And you can't constantly be going around every person and being like, Actually, the werewolves are a metaphor for the AIDS pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. And I mean, sometimes I think it's funny when authors, like, throw in a little, like, oh, like, by the way, like, this thing is, but I, I like, J.K. Rowling needs to just, like, yeah, stop, we like, don't need to know. <laughs> well, if you, if you are on, but, like, yeah, yeah, a yeah. talk show or you're being interviewed and you were like, yeah, you know, my inspiration for this came from this thing in real life. That's a little depth to the story, but, like, you know, people, like, on Twitter are like, I didn't like this part of the book. And she's like, you just didn't understand. <laughs> Here's my Twitter thesis. Yeah. You know, you just have to let people do what they're going to do with the, 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 the media. Yeah, and I, like, I couldn't help, I mean, obviously, when I read that quote about, like, you know, the tail will move them and drive them and who knows what they might do because of it. I, I couldn't help but, like, sit there and think about, like, oh, yeah, like, what were some of the stories? Like, I've read things before where I was like, wow, this is really, you know what, maybe I should go and, like, do this thing that so, I wanted to do. Because, like, you know, that kind of thing. The reason this is my favorite scene in the book is because all the other scenes have, like, truly beautiful exposition, and most of it is exposition. Like, there's very... There's a lot of exposition. It's a character-driven book, mm -hmm. which is weird, because it's most of it's exposition. But I think the problem with the the exposition is not the length or the density of it, but, like, my favorite uh, point of view is close third, where, like, you're in third person, you could reach out and talk, like, like touch multiple people, but you stay close to one person and you're seeing the world like over their shoulder. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like I think of when I think it's your first meet, one of the first times you meet Prospero and he's in his dressing room and they describe how messy it is and everything. But then she doesn't describe how, how Prospero, the pathos of this room feels to Prospero. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's just the room looks like this. Prospero is doing this, but you never get a connection between, like, the, the layout of the room and all the stuff in it. So, like, you're like, alright, you told me a, a hell of a lot about this room, but you didn't tell me how that makes Prospero feel. Interesting. Um, And that's, like, the disconnect for me from most of the book in it. And at the end, you're getting this whole scene about, like, the, like, tangible part of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And, like, the rest of the book kind of misses on that, I think. Yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. Um, okay. I'm trying to think. I have, I do have one more quote that I want to discuss from the book uh, that I pulled out that I liked. It, this is a very short quote, 
it's the first one it says the smallest charms can be the most effective and i just wanted to put it in here because it's a quote that came up multiple times throughout the book most of the time it's like marco saying it to somebody usually to isabel who is another minor character that we didn't even talk about because there's so many characters in this book but isabel is the fortune teller and she seems like she can actually tell people's fortunes, but she learned some small charms from Marco. Um, and she actually makes a small charm binding, like, a hat of Marco's to, I think, a tarot card that she, is, she associated with Celia when she read Celia's cards. And that small charm that she makes with those items actually helped to hold the circus together. And when that charm is broken because Isabel doesn't think it's working is when Herr Thiessen dies. Um, but I, I wanted to talk about the quote, the smallest charms can be the most effective because it made me think of like, even the smallest influence can make a big change. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that kind of idea. Um, it made me think of, and I hope, I'm getting the right source material, but, like, you know, Romani curses are not meant to be, like, I've cursed you, and now, like, your your life is ruined. But, like, it's supposed to be something small, like, where people are, like, I curse you, and um, may you have, like, minuscule bad luck for a year, something, <laughs> right? And the, the, so, like, when your attention is drawn to something, you're, you're going to see it more often, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, once someone says something to you, and then you're like, oh, I stubbed my toe, I dropped the butter knife I was picking up, I um, slipped and broke my, like, art project or something, all that stuff, you start you start to think, like, I'm cursed, and it gets in your head. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, just doing the smallest things in this carnival, like, rippled outwards to everyone who was paying attention to it. Oh, yeah, it definitely did. That's definitely true. Yeah. Um... So you talked about your uh, favorite part already. I will just say really quickly my favorite part. I mean, I was going into this hoping for the romance. Like, I was looking for the romance. And I really, I I loved the scene. I was talking to my friends about this the other day, where they have the, I think it's the anniversary party for the circus. And it's like and the 13th year, it's but the it's the 10-year year, anniversary. It's the 10-year anniversary, but they forgot about it at the 10-year mark, so they had it at the 13th-year mark, which just seemed very apt for the yeah. circus um but celia is the illusionist illusionist in like full form like she's wearing a dress that changes color to match whoever she's like standing next to um but it's when like her and marco are starting to realize they have like feelings for each other but marco is an instructor and celia's dad are still being like no don't get involved with each other. Don't do it. And they don't. They still don't know that 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 one of them has to die yet. For yeah. The competition at this point. But then Marco, after like cognu his instructor, he just storms out of the room, and Celia's in the middle of the dance floor, and he just like pulls Celia in for a kiss, and her dress turns green because he's wearing green. And then when he leaves, she, her dress stays green for the rest of the night because she essentially could just focus on him. There were so many cute there were so many good moments between Marco and Celia. Like I loved also when they were like walking through the garden and the house and he was like using his illusion magic to show her or they were in the 
the paper tent and yeah. he was like I could write on every surface of this paper but I wouldn't be able to describe my like feelings for you you know like that kind of thing see I I don't feel like the romance was earned in the book it it did kind of like skip over some the, a lot of parts of it the actual like, writing of the romantic scenes is really beautiful mm-hmm. but like when it started happening because like they don't even meet until like 300 yeah, pages into a 500 page book. you didn't get like any of the build-up really and then all of a sudden they're just like i love you i love you too and yeah. you're like well okay we're here I, now i guess i definitely agree with it like it didn't include i'm definitely a fan of like the slow burn like it didn't really show any of like the longing and like the oh yeah. we can't it was more of just like it just jumped into the moments where it was like oh my god i think you, i love this person you know like yeah. that kind of thing um i did still enjoy the love story but i definitely do feel like it could have benefited from a little more build up so hmm. All right, I have a question. I have a question for you. Did you have a favorite tent in the circus of all the tents that were described? And if you need a minute to think about it, I can go first. But I'm worried I would pick the same one as you, so then I could change my answer to a different one. (laughs) I'm trying to think of like what the actual labyrinth tent had in it, where you like light a candle and walk through it. Mm -hmm. Because I think that was my favorite, but I don't really know. I just like the idea of walking around the labyrinth. I think the labyrinth tent, too, I think the labyrinth had, like, a varied amount of things in it. Like, there was one room where it was, like, it looked like the night sky went out for, like, miles and miles, and then you went in another room, and it was, like, a desert. And But what I did like about the labyrinth tent, if that is your favorite one, you can still think about it and change your I mean, because the ice garden was in there, too, right? I... I think the ice garden is in the labyrinth. I sometimes I have a hard time of knowing where the tents were that's in relation what, to each other. And I think that's on purpose. I think it's intentional. But I I couldn't remember if the ice garden was a part of the labyrinth or if the, they were two yeah. different ones because those are like the two that stick out in my mind. But what I what I do want to say about the labyrinth is I did want to comment on this, and it's a good thing you picked that tent. Is what I liked about it is the labyrinth was essentially a way for them to write love letters to each other mm-hmm. because they each were building off of it. So like Celia would make a room and then Marco would be like, oh, I'm going to make this room to like Celia because I know Celia will like it. And then Celia would be like, I'm going to make this room in the labyrinth because I know Marco would like it. And Marco was not traveling with the circus. so He didn't get to see the rooms all the time, but Celia did. And Marco was like, I want to put these rooms in here so that you can feel like I'm close, even when I'm not, kind of thing, with the labyrinth. I don't know. Yeah. I think you like the labyrinth more for just the uniqueness of it, that you could yeah. be, like, in one second, you could be in freezing cold, and then you're in a desert, and I would be like, what the heck? You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But, like, um, but, yeah, did you like the ice garden the best? If if that was a part of the labyrinth, I'm not really sure. Probably. Yeah. I, well, that's where the wishing tree is, too, right? I think the wishing tree is a different tent. Oh, okay. Wishing I thought they, like, went tent. through the labyrinth to get to the wishing tree. No, the wishing tree is definitely a different but, tent. Like, the perception so. I had of the labyrinth was not only was it its own tent, but you could just, like, accidentally come out in other tents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just accidentally show up in a different tent. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, the circus definitely had that vibe, too, because, like, even some of the people who were, like, the big fans, they'd be, like, sometimes they they'd be like, I've been to the circus like 30 times and I just found a tent I didn't even know was there, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, 
All right. Well, I think my favorite tent was actually uh, Widget's tent. The cat tent? <laughs> no, not the cat tent. Although I did love the cats. <laughs> yeah. I love that the cats were included. It's not as really a, thing. a tent. They had like a stand. Yeah, they didn't really have a tent. They kind of just did uh, the axe on the side of the road there. But Widget's tent was the tent that Bailey stumbled into on accident one one day. Hmm. And it had all the bottles oh, in it yeah. and the boxes. And then if you opened it, you would get a scent. And the scent would tell you a story, which was widget skill. Like, he could, he could tell a story by reading a person or by, like, reading an environment. He could, like, know a story, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so his tent was like, you open a bottle and you smell like a sea breeze and you hear a sound of a gull crying in the distance and the waves crashing and you feel the sun on your skin as you're so like, I just love the idea of it. And not all of them were safe either. There were some where it was like, it was cold and you could like feel something watching you from the woods, like kind of smell. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just feel like if I found a tent like that, I would be in there for hours because I'd be like opening every single thing. And um, I I can't remember if they said it in a, in the book about his tent or if I read it uh, after as a review, but that it's his tent was like a new take on the thousand and one no, Arabian, Arabian Nights, Nights yeah. tale, tales of the Arabian Nights thing. Um. And I liked that. I liked that idea that that was what um, his tent was, you know. And don't get me started on a thousand one. I can go off. You don't. You don't like. Them, oh no, I or... love it. It's oh. one of the coolest pieces of antiquity. <laughs> the way that you said it, I was like, "Are you gonna fight it? Like, yeah. what is? Okay. No, no, it's yeah. really cool. Okay, like we could I... do a whole episode on that. Oh, okay. Um, that would be a long read. I don't know if we could read that. Yeah, I even like <laughs> like reading it, but the way you can like trace it through cultures and you can find out when cultures oh, come in contact with each other because the story is so old and you can see yeah, when they find a thousand and one nights. That is very I do have to admit I I don't think I have read the whole a thousand and one yeah. nights. I've definitely read some of the tales for sure of how could you not? Yeah. But you know. Um Okay. Did you have any topics you would like to Um have yeah, so like the ending, where they're both, like, the patron spirits of the circus. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read Oedipus at Colonus? I have not. It's the final part of the Oedipus trilogy. And it actually, it, it's, like, the reason people debate that Oedipus is not a tragedy. Okay. But in Oedipus at Colonus, he ends up in Athens. And he's sitting on this stone, and all the people come out, and they're like, you're sitting on a place where the Furies is, like, sacred to them. You need to leave. And he refuses, and, like, everyone gets mad, and eventually the king comes out and says, like, no, you can stay here. Um, I'm gonna make you, like, a, a citizen of Athens so you're no longer homeless like you are from your homeland. Um, and eventually, um, Oedipus says, like, thank you, I'm going to watch over this place as if it was my homeland, and no harm will befall it. And then when he dies, um... He, uh, the king replies, like, I'm gonna bury you in an un a place where no one's gonna find you so you'll be undisturbed, because, like, people hate him. Um, and if they ever do find you, like, you know, the curse, like, like you will no longer be bound to protecting the city. So when he dies, he becomes the protector of Athens. Um, and he's, like, redeemed. And it's kind of the same thing that uh, Celia and Marco do, where they, like, die and become, like, the protector of this 
place. Mm-hmm. And I was like, she's gotta have read as a colonist when I was reading that part of the book. True. For that kind of, like, passing on yeah. type thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, mean? like she becomes, like, like it, it almost, it, it feels like the same kind of uh, resolution to a story where, like, these people become the patron spirit of a place. Yeah, I like the idea that, like, I... I mean, I hope that they would be happy, Marco and Celia. They essentially trap themselves there, but the circus moves around. Can you imagine getting divorced and being stuck in a <laughs> magical circus together? You're divorced and you can't leave. You have to see each other every single day for the rest of eternity. And not even that, too, but, like, now Celia's dad, they got to deal with him, too, and he's, like, showing up randomly anyway. <laughs> yeah, so that was... Uh, okay. Yeah. I think that's just, like... I don't know, either, like, you know, she had never read that story and, and never heard of it, because a lot of people have never heard of that Greek tragedy. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, a really cool example of, like, there's, like, only seven stories and we just tell them in different ways. Or, like, it was, like, a very deliberate attempt, because it's very, very similar to the way it's written. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. And she seems like the kind of person who would be, like, a classicist. I'm, I'd be interested to read, I mean, the same as when we read the Naomi Novik book, like, I'd be interested to read uh, more of Aaron Morgenstern's I work think and see. she only has one other book. I, I'd be interested to read it then and see how it differs or how it's similar to... And it's called, like, Through the Starless Sea or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it's about. I yeah. know that it exists. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, because I would like to see if the... If the exposition is kind of the same weight in that other book as it is for this one, because this one, and I don't think I said this either, the Night Circus was originally a short story for yeah. her. Like she originally wrote it as a short story, and then they were like, "Hey, you think this could be a novel?" And then she made it a novel, and it is like when I was looking for standalone fantasy novels to read which are really hard to find in my opinion like almost all fantasy novels are like a two for a three for yeah, at least yeah. and she, this was like up in the top five of every single list was the night circus and it was it was pretty good i kind of wish i had a little more time to like take it in instead of having to like read it within this condensed time mm-hmm. but i still enjoyed it um do you have any final thoughts on the book yeah i mean like I don't know. I mean, it's more of a rating at this point. <laughs> sure, we can jump right to the yeah. ratings. I mean, I I was just had final thoughts and then ratings. So you know, like I I have to give it like a two and a half out of five, and mm. it's not because the book is bad. Scorching review or no, if it was scorching, <laughs> I'd be like a two. <laughs> okay. Anything below two and a half is real bad. Uh huh. Um, the two and a half is just kind of like it's a good story that I think could have been paced better. Like you know. My main problems with the book, like I said, are the disconnect between the characters and the setting, and the late introduction of the plot. Mm. Like, you know at the beginning they're in the competition, you don't know what the stakes of the competition are. Yeah. And then it takes nearly 300 to 400 pages to get to that point where you learn what's happening. And I wondered, like, 
What would it have like negatively affected my view if I had known early? I don't think it would. I think it would have actually made those moments between Marco and Celia more intense. That's what I was thinking. Because like, I'd be like, oh no, one of them's gonna die. They can like, they can still be kept in the dark. Yeah. Because all you have to do is put a scene in where like Prospero and, and Alexander and are talking about, oh, one of them's gonna die. Yeah. It, like <laughs> like all they have to do is in passing be like, remember what Susiko did. Like, yes. her, her opponent is a pillar of ash now. And then right. you're like, okay, the stakes are deadly. Right. And earlier on in the story, that gives you a reason to be very, very, very invested in the outcome of the game. Right, right. And like I said, it might have made the moments between Celia and Marco even more intense because it's yeah. like, oh, this is like a doomed love kind of and thing. And like... You know, I said this to you. Like, I really wish you would read the Infernal Devices because I <laughs> you think did say this I think it's the perfect Victorian romance. Mm-hmm. But it's three books, you know. I should um, read it. I think I would like them. Um, so, but like, you know, you find out very early that one of the characters, who's just a complete fucking asshole to everyone, is cursed. He's been cursed so that everyone he loves will die. So he he's like, I refuse to love getting anyone. rid of everyone. Okay. Yeah, and they tell you that very early, but almost no one else knows that. Interesting. And so you just have this complete, like, heartbreak for this man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So you gave it 2.5? Yeah. Or 2.5 out of 5? Yeah. And I think I, I've been giving 10-star readings, so I'm going to stick with that, but I did give it, I gave it a 4 out of 5 on Goodreads. Um, But I think I would probably give it, like, a... 6.5 out of 10. And for me, it really was, I just wanted more of that romance. Yeah. Like, I just wanted more of it. That That's literally all it is for me, is, like, the expedition and everything was beautiful. Like, reading all those things about the circus and the clock, like, I, it was beautiful. But, like, I, I this is a me thing. I picked it up wanting that slow burn romance-centered plot. And it didn't really, like, have that for me. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and, like, I loved hearing about all the characters and everything, but sometimes I was just, like, I feel like we got distracted in all the characters, and I wanted to get back to Celia and Marco and kind of, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, yeah, I'd say, like, 6.5 out of 10. Yeah. Like, you know, now I'm just thinking about, I'm like, you know, Bailey has a sister, and yeah. she's talked about a lot, and she's just really mean. Yeah. And, but it doesn't... I mean, like, I guess the one purpose she serves is to show you why Bailey doesn't stay at home and he runs away. But, like, you there's, like, probably, like, 60 pages talking about his sister. Mm-hmm. You're just like, what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I I don't know. I think I think it was a good book. I yeah, will say yeah. that. I, I enjoyed it. I think it was good. I don't want it to sound like I didn't think it was good. I think it just wasn't fitting the vibe or it just didn't get there. Mm. It just didn't get to what I wanted it to be, essentially, uh, by the end. Yeah. So. And I think nonlinear storytelling is really hard. Yeah. Like, you know, that's why people struggle with reading The Witcher. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well. All right. Well, there you go. That is uh, The Night Circus, then. Very interesting fantasy, a uh, little bit of romance, a lot of intrigue, uh, if you want to check it out yourself and let us know what you think. And yeah, next month. Which is tomorrow. Which is tomorrow. Which is <laughs> tomorrow. We're really, we're really down to the wire here on this uh, episode. Oh, in January felt like it took forever, but we dragged our feet on this episode, maybe. Um, 
We are very excited. We'll be reading a book called The Wall by Sarah Jane Singer. Not to be confused with the Sartre story. And not to be confused with the start story, if anybody was. Uh, but, but we're very excited to read this, and uh, she's a new author, and you can find her book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble if you want to read along with us. And uh, we hope we hope you do. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next month. And until then, come find us at Shared Pages Pod on Twitter or... Listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right.